This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Sunday edition of the Best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. It was a shocking medical emergency played out on live television. A young athlete, an NFL player in peak physical condition, suffered cardiac arrest on the playing field. That's what happened to 24-year-old Buffalo Bills safety DeMar Hamlin Monday night during a game against the Cincinnati Bengals. What followed is also shocking, but not surprising in today's social media misinformation machinery. Within minutes of Hamlin's stunning collapse, anti-vaxxers and right-wing provocateurs sought to link the injury that left Hamlin in critical condition— with the COVID-19 vaccine without providing any evidence. Even here in the Toronto market, a local TV news anchor asked a doctor about a possible link, likely because of baseless fodder circulating online. On the positive side, there has been an outpouring of support for DeMar Hamlin and his family and increased interest in how this kind of cardiac arrest can happen and how defibrillators can save lives. On Wednesday, Libby discussed the story and fallout with Anthony Housefather, Liberal Member of Parliament for Mount Royal, with a track record of calling out online hate and misinformation, along with cardiologist and epidemiologist Dr. Christopher Labos. Well, yeah, so we do have to speculate a little bit because obviously we aren't there and we aren't privy to what's going on in the hospital and what are the results of any testing that might have happened there. But if we work under the assumption that he was a perfectly healthy 24-year-old that had no pre-existing medical problems, the question becomes what could have provoked the arrhythmia that put him into cardiac arrest? And there is a condition called commotio cordis, where a blow to the center of the chest can actually provoke an arrhythmia if you strike the breastbone just over the heart with, significant, with, with sufficient force at exactly the right moment in the cardiac cycle when the heart is vulnerable to arrhythmias because it's in the process of repolarizing. This is not a common thing, but it has happened. There have been uh, just under 300 cases reported over the past 30 years ever since the U.S. registry on this condition was put in place. So it is something that happens. It tends to happen in younger people. The average age for this condition is, is about 15 years old. And you you usually see it in sports like baseball and hockey where you have a puck or a ball that is projected at high speeds and can strike people in the chest. But it has happened in football and in the absence of any information to the contrary, the most likely hypothesis is that it was the tackle and the you know elbow that he might have gotten to the chest that may have provoked the arrhythmia in this case. Can you explain what the cycle, the, the, the heart beating cycle that you alluded to there, how does that work? Mm-hmm. So it's electricity that drives your heart. Your heartbeat, the electrical rhythm of your heart, is based on a cycle of electricity. And the way that your heart muscle knows to beat, knows to contract, is it gets an electrical signal that opens up certain electrical channels that makes it 
beat. So those channels open and then those channels close and the electricity of the heart is reset and that process is called depolarization and repolarization. And right at the beginning of the repolarization cycle, when the heart is resetting itself electrically for the next heartbeat, you have a window of, frankly, just a few milliseconds where a blow or an electrical stimulus or something can provoke an, uh, an arrhythmia. So it's a very hard thing to do on purpose, but it is something that can happen by accident, um, you know, rarely, but it does happen. Lori, talk about uh, wrong place, wrong time. Uh, let's bring in Anthony Housefather. So it was, uh, you know, speaking of a window of, of seconds, that's about how long it took for the anti-vaxxers and and conspiracy theories to theorists to to jump in on that, w- were you surprised? I mean, I, I I would hate to say that I was surprised, given how common this has become in in recent years. But it's shocking to see people with no evidence, uh, no medical correlation, making preposterous claims. You know, they don't even know if the man was vaccinated or if he had been recently vaccinated making the claim that somehow the vaccines were the responsible for this incident on the football field and for, you know, other, uh, you know, unnamed sudden deaths of young people playing sports. And, and it just frustrated me to see that because it wasn't just one person that did it. It was multiple right-wing commentators that did it one after the other. And you've got to debunk that. You've got to do what Chris did. You've got to do what others did by calling it out and saying, look, you have clear visual evidence of what likely happened. What you're saying has absolutely no bearing in reality. Um, and you're, you're stretching a tiny segment of information that you have to create a false correlation and to create false evidence. And that's, that's what just keeps happening on the Internet, on Twitter in particular, but in all kinds of social media where people who are conspiracy theorists find ways to take one random piece of information um, and then use that to create something that's completely false and people just believe it. And we have a responsibility, I think, Libby, on your show, um, you know, all of us, to call that out. Anthony Housefather, Liberal Member of Parliament, with a track record of calling out online hate and misinformation, and cardiologist and epidemiologist Dr. Christopher Labos. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. The bills for the holiday gifting season are coming due, and so are the deadlines for returning items. And this brings up the question, how do you find customer service these days? Anecdotally, customer service seems to be getting worse, although when you follow the rules of returns for individual retailers, the process should be seamless. Then there are all the hassles around airline travel as passengers try to get compensation for lost baggage and cancelled flights. Lisa Hutchison is a retail expert and consultant with J.C. Williams. She joined Libby on Wednesday to talk about these consumer challenges. I think the retailer in those sorts of instances has to really understand, you know, the value of the customer. And, you know, there's there's the retailer's point of view in terms of um, trying to, you know, keep the sale and not lose it to a return. But at the same time, for sure, when there's inventory that's out of stock, when you, when it can be um, months behind, you know, that, you know, maybe the purchase was made in early December and then, you know, you're returning it in January, you know, there could be out of stocks 
and typically in January, especially after holiday, you know, it, it, product is sold out. And so they're waiting. The retailer is just starting to get in their new, um, their new collection. And so a lot of, you know, even this, that same product is unlikely still going to be available. And so what does that mean for us moving forward? And I think as we start to see what's going to happen from a return from, from what retailers are going to have uh, looking forward is definitely how are they going to deal with these staff shortages and, uh, and what does that do to customer service? And how can they improve that customer experience? I mean, you know, again, when we look at the travel nightmare, it, there was a terrible snowstorm, you know, and I, I've been, I'm sure you've been, most of us have been in airports w- with huge delays. And all you want is the courtesy of some communications. And these large companies, they don't even think they have to communicate. Yeah, or they don't have the people that are trained and able to be able to deal with the the crisis. Um, and well, the why would they be hired for communication staff? I know they have them. Mm-hmm. Or not available. <laughs> what what does that, that mean? To something, you know, what's really important to the customer and what we talk to our customers about when they're, you know, our retail and, and, and service businesses is, Really being authentic and being and understand the trust that you need to develop. And this, you know, what you're describing is it really taints the customer on this retailer, this business with these kinds of ex- these experiences. And it really turns them off and it speaks to what retailers and businesses have to do moving forward in terms of getting better. Because, you know, as much as it may be frustrating to hear the truth from what's actually happening, uh, it's better than nothing. And I think that's one of the biggest challenges when nobody's actually communicating. It's just making it a bad situation even worse. It's been a really lost opportunity for some of these brands to go back and have that trust and have that um, be able to provide that kind of service. And particularly in the digital age, when it is so much more transparent what's happening, um, brands just have to get better at making sure they have the right people managing uh, the communication to the customer. From our, our team's point of view, you know, really customers, and this is what I'm hearing from your callers, they want those interactions to be memorable in a good way and experiential and provide them, um, you know, a great experience. And I think these, these businesses really need to understand because, you know, it just used to be the store experience, but now it's, it's, it's on social media. It's communicating with them uh, by emails, on the phone, the call centers. You know, there's all these different touch points now that these businesses that can interact with the customer. And, you know, they definitely need to figure out how they're going to be able to service all these different uh, message and touch points with the customer. Lisa Hutchison, a retail expert and consultant with J.C. Williams. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Coming up after the break, Mayor John Tory prioritizes safety in the city for the 2023 Toronto budget. Is he on the right path? We discuss next. 
You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. We've been getting some details from Mayor John Tory on early proposals for the 2023 City of Toronto budget. These include a $48 million increase to the Toronto Police Service budget to hire 200 more officers and a 10-cent fare hike for single adult rides on the TTC, which will go to improving safety on Toronto's transit system. Safety in the city seems to be an overriding theme, which begs the question, is Toronto no longer a safe city? And if it's not, are these the right decisions to get us back there? While filling in for Libby on Thursday, I posed this question to TTC spokesperson Stuart Green and Sheila Pisey Allen of the Transit Advocacy Group, TTC Riders. It is concerning. We're hearing from lots of riders about safety issues, and everyone deserves to feel safe and welcome on the TTC. So it's important that we're having this conversation but it's a very nuanced conversation. Safety means more than, you know, protection from the most extreme violence. We, we hear from a lot of women who are afraid to take transit alone at night when the bus doesn't come frequently enough, when there's not enough staff in station. So we do need more staff, but they need to be the right kind of staff. We know the wrong kind of staff are going to make some people, especially Black and Indigenous transit users, less safe. And at the same time, this budget is cutting subway service, cutting bus service, that is going to make transit less safe, especially for women and and shift workers who use the TTC late at night. So when you say right kind of staff, uh, tell us what you mean by that. We think that there's safety in numbers. So part of that is making sure we're welcoming transit users back to the system with frequent service, with affordable fares, but also supportive staff roles that can really contribute to making transit welcoming and accessible, who are trained and, you know, de-escalating crisis situations, but also people want more from the transit system. They want help navigating it, wayfinding. Another safety issue we're hearing a lot about is from people who use mobility devices who are very worried about going into the subway and getting their wheels caught um, boarding the subway. That's a safety issue we haven't heard about in this budget. Adding more police is not going to address those safety issues. So, we really need a thoughtful approach and making sure we're hiring the right kind of staff that are going to create a welcoming environment because that's the big issue facing the TTC. How do we bring back riders? And we're seeing a budget that's cutting service by 9% compared to pre-pandemic levels. Stuart Green, over to you and uh, the perspective from the TTC. Uh, you're hearing concerns from TTC riders. It sounds like the transit system has devolved, certainly since the beginning of the pandemic. Well, I mean, let me say this. Uh, I mean, Sheila and I uh, probably agree on 90% of what transit needs and what transit should be. So everything she says is absolutely true. Um, you know, what I would remind your listeners is that, you know, the TTC is a public transit agency. We are, you know, 40% of this budget is being funded by the City of Toronto. We need to find 60% somewhere else. You know, we have two places we can go. One is our service levels. The other is our customers. 
So short of having, you know, sustainable funding from uh, those with deeper pockets than we have, uh, you know, we're, we're in a situation uh, where we have to do the best with what we've got, and, and that's what we've tried to do with this budget. So with respect to safety, you know, again, Sheila is absolutely right. You know, we hear from, we know that 55% of our customers are women. We know that. We know that the vast majority of our customers, and we do customer polling all the time, the vast majority of their concerns right now are about safety and security over service, for example. So we, you know, we've tried to present a budget that, that addresses those concerns that are the real concerns of our customers that we hear, you know, we, we talk to thousands of them when we do our surveys and, and that was their chief concern. So, you know, we're in a, we're in a situation where, you know, we're trying to balance all of these things, keeping safety top of mind. Um, and, you know, unfortunately there are, there are other things that we have to uh, contend with, like we're dealing with 70% of our ridership, which means a huge loss in revenue. So, um, you know, again, this is, this is the situation we face. So again, Sheila and I will agree on a lot of things about what transit should be and what it needs. Uh, the, you know, the issue that we have is how we fund that with the resources that we have. Sheila Pizial and final comments from you. Thanks. Yeah, I just wanted to, you know, emphasize again that the, these are alarming cuts. 9% service, um, 9% service cuts compared to pre-pandemic levels. And, you know, riders will not come back if the TTC is so it's cut so deeply that you just can't rely on it. So our message to the mayor and city councillors is to invest in the transit service that we need and reverse the fare hikes that are going to hurt the lowest income people in Toronto. And, and maybe more of us should get back on the TTC for those of us who haven't been on the subway since before the pandemic. Uh, maybe it's a good idea uh, to take a ride and just see for yourself what it's all about, Sheila. Absolutely. Yeah, there's, uh, I use the TTC regularly and it's, you know, I think there's safety in numbers um, and we riders need to come back for sure. But if you're a transit user or if you've been thinking about coming back, make sure to contact your city councillor about the budget and make sure that that investment is there. My conversation on Thursday with TTC spokesperson Stuart Green and Sheila Pisey Allen of TTC Riders. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. As we all know, January is the month for lifestyle resolutions, and quitting drinking is always at the top of the list. Just look at the popularity of Dry January. Well, this year, there is a new version, Damp January, which advocates cutting back instead of stopping completely. It seems to be part of a trend for other initiatives as well, whether they involve healthier eating or more exercise. The thought is that the cold turkey approach doesn't usually work, and we're better off with going for more modest and achievable goals. Libby was joined by a panel of experts to talk about dry-ish January and other halfway goals. Sarah Dimmerman is a psychologist based in Toronto, and Dr. Kevin Shield is a scientist with CAMH's Institute for Mental Health Policy Research. Previously, the treatment goals for addiction, especially with uh, respect to alcohol, has been that the abstention was the only goal. And this can be seen through programs like the 12-step program. Um, but for some, that's not realistic, and they can't achieve that. And for those that 
can't achieve that, I think a harm reduction perspective is really a good option um, and will improve people's health. So if you're at three drinks a day, which many people are in Canada, going down to two drinks or one drink a day, you'll see health benefits from that. So a harm reduction, uh, reducing your alcohol consumption approach is a great way of improving your health. And a one-size-fits-all approach isn't necessarily right. And the health improvements by reduction are very real and beneficial. You know, you're talking about addiction, and I think that uh, people who have a glass of wine or two with dinner, um, they certainly wouldn't consider themselves addicted. Is there a different paradigm for people who are suffering with addiction and people who just want to cut back and be healthier? So there is in terms of uh, the treatment as well of uh, alcohol. So if you have addiction, uh, one of the problems is withdrawal. So if you try to cut back on your own and go completely abstinent, you're at risk for things like epileptic seizures. So if you're cutting back and you're noticing withdrawal symptoms, that is very dangerous. And so you should consult a doctor. Uh, You should consult your family doctor first about reducing your alcohol consumption if you think you're experiencing withdrawal symptoms that would put you at risk for something like an epileptic seizure. Um, But addiction has levels. So there are people who um, consume alcohol to a level where they wouldn't uh, have withdrawals. And for those people, um, we've seen a less is better approach can work with those people as well. So it's not just among people who aren't addicted to alcohol, um, people who are addicted to alcohol that would meet those classical uh, definitions uh, used by the DSM, which is a, a tool used to diagnose alcohol use disorders, that would be the less is better approach actually works with them as well. Okay, Sarah Dimmerman. So what do you find with your patients, clients, uh, um, in terms of cutting back? Do they kind of try to do too much and then feel badly about themselves if they fall short? Well, I think, as you said, this is the time of year where people often make resolutions, although I've noticed that people are not making resolutions as much as they used to. But one of the resolutions is usually around uh, food and drink. And possibly that's also because December tends to be a month where we often indulge more heavily in food and drink. Um, so, yes, I think that if you have an absolute anything, you know, I will stop drinking, I will stop eating everything with sugar then that kind of law of deprivation, as we call it, makes people more inclined to want it. So they start thinking about it in their sleep and having dreams about it. <laughs> and, and I think sometimes that's why, as you mentioned earlier, the, the damp January might be more effective long term, because I think the complete abstinence to anything, unless you're on a treatment program potentially, but on your own complete abstinence and I'll never touch another drop of alcohol kind of thing, uh, for somebody who is not maybe heavily addicted or diagnosed as an addict, um, might not work long-term. So I think in keeping with the everything in moderation approach um, with anything, whether it be drinking or food or exercise or anything like that, is often a really good thing, and especially for people who, um, you know, who are not maybe in treatment for heavy addiction that is impacting all parts of their life. Hmm. So I think we have to look at that as well. 
Sarah Dimmerman, psychologist based in Toronto, and Dr. Kevin Shield, a scientist with CAMH's Institute for Mental Health Policy Research. I'm Jane Brown, and you're listening to the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Coming up, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby Snymer has the most informed guests on the week's hot topics. And we also rely on you for your valued opinions. Here are some of this week's best calls. CETA in Mississauga phoned about erroneous claims floated by anti-vaxxers that the NFL's DeMar Hamlin had cardiac arrest because of the COVID vaccine. I don't understand why people have so much objections to taking vaccine. And when they're sick, they will put anything in their body to get better. What's the difference? And now, Fight Back's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week is Edith in Mississauga, who phoned about a nightmare customer service experience. My beef is uh, customer service calling in. I called Telus yesterday. I called them last week. I waited about over two hours. Oh, my God. I couldn't get anybody. Um, I called yesterday. I waited for an hour and 37 minutes because I timed it. Uh, somebody came on the line, and I told them what I wanted or what I was calling about, and she said, oh, you need to speak with uh, another department. Uh, yeah, okay, yes, I think I know where this goes. Yeah, she says, oh, it'll take about seven minutes, and if they don't come to you within a certain time, I'll call you back. Uh, right. Give me your number. I did all that, and I stayed on the line, I waited for over three hours, and the call timed out and disconnected. That does it for this week's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at fightbacklibby and call our Fightback voicemail anytime at 416-367-9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again next weekend when we'll round up the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi. With technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.